So welcome to this third in our series of lectures on England's Reformation and their legacies. The Reformation is conventionally the process by which parts of Catholic Europe embraced Protestantism. And that's a process that happens in England. But let's not get too distracted by it. From the point of view of law and of the sinews of the English state, the doctrinal, devotional, cultural transformations that we call the Reformation are so much froth, a byproduct, maybe even a useful distraction. It's often said that the English Reformation is an act of state, a political event more than it is a religious one. That's not the whole truth. But it's a large part of it, and it's the part we're going to be dwelling on in today's lecture. The Reformation may have transformed English culture and religion, but it also brought the English state and the British state that succeeded it into being. And it quietly and decisively shapes our national life still today. And indeed, while the story that I'll be telling is mostly an English one, that slippage between English and British is one of its most important aspects. England's Reformation determined a series of relationships between the nations of Britain and Ireland that we still enjoy or endure down to the present. Medieval politics is marked by a long dance between church and state, or between the so-called spiritual power wielded by the popes, bishops, and great abbots, and the temporal power of kings, princes, noblemen, cities, and magistrates. Sometimes those two spheres of power collided spectacularly. English history offered two notable examples of this, both from within the same generation. In 1170, a, a sudden and total breakdown of goodwill between King Henry II and his old friend and new Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket, led to Becket's murder, his canonization as a saint, and a scandal which nearly drove Henry II from his throne. Forty years later, under Henry's son, King John, uh, a similarly spectacular breakdown of relations between him and Pope Innocent III led to the effective excommunication of the entire country for some years, and then to a humiliating royal submission in which the Pope was actually made sovereign of England. This catastrophe led not just to the further royal humiliation known as Magna Carta, um, but it also gave King John a reputation which has remained uniquely toxic amongst English kings down to the present, despite a valiant attempt by the Tudors to turn him into a hero of English national resistance, and even despite Shakespeare's stab at rewriting the myth in those terms. The lesson of these two disasters is not that one side or the other won out in the end. I mean, in both cases, the church won on points, but that the conflict itself was desperately damaging to both sides. And this is why, despite the obvious potential for conflicts like this to get out of control, both sides generally recognised 
that working together was in everybody's interests. Instead of rivals, we should think of the secular and temporal, the, 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 the secular and spiritual powers as collaborators, staffed by members of the same great families, sharing the same ambitions for godly good order. The temporal powers were the church's indispensable guardians and patrons. The spiritual power was the monarch's indispensable reservoir of legitimacy and of bureaucratic expertise. It's true that if you pressed them, both sides could be persuaded to make dramatic claims. Since the 11th century, the popes had claimed superiority over all kings. In the early 14th century, Pope Boniface VIII, who was locked in another of those mutually destructive struggles, this time with the King of France, declared that it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. In theory, popes could eject kings from their thrones, and they had periodically tried to do this with mixed success. Kings would naturally push back against these claims, whether by defying individual popes or promulgating laws denying papal privileges. In England, most famously in 1353, a statute called Praemunire had criminalized attempts by English subjects to appeal to Rome over the king's head. We shouldn't see this statute as a declaration of independence. It is a vaguely worded gesture of defiance, a warning growl that whatever the church might say about itself, it would be wise not to overstep the mark. But beneath all this posturing, the ground is steadily shifting. The papacy's political and legal powers are slowly ebbing away. Boniface VIII's defiance of the French king ends with the Pope being seized and beaten so badly by French troops that he dies within a month. For most of the rest of the century, the papacy as an institution is relocated to Avignon in southern France and remains under effective French control. An attempt to break free by the papacy from this so-called Babylon Babylonical captivity in 1377 leads to an even worse disaster, the, 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 the so-called Great Schism, in which there were two or latterly three rival popes. And that catastrophe is only brought to an end when a general council of the church, that is an assembly of all the bishops from around Europe, meets, bangs everyone's heads together, persuades the rivals to resign and appoints a new pope in their place. It's hardly a resounding affirmation of papal power. And although it's reunited, the papacy after this is a shrunken thing. Now, from now on, an office held almost exclusively by Italians, struggling at times even to hold on to its territorial independence and its moral authority compromised during the era of dominance by families like the Borgia and the Medici. By the early 16th century, there's a tacit understanding that the papacy is going to continue to claim outlandish powers, that monarchs will acknowledge them in theory, and that no pope is going to risk the embarrassment of trying to exercise them.
But the papacy did retain real powers of a more prosaic kind. Rome's bureaucratic and its legal reach were pervasive. The church courts were parallel to, independent of, and to a degree separate from the secular courts of the temporal powers. All Christian rulers had to take into account a body of international law that was largely beyond their control. The comparison between the medieval church and the modern European Union is, has become a bit of a cliche, but for good reason. Both are entities whose messy reality um, did not live up to their high ideals and whose aspirations to supranational governance were honoured chiefly with lip service. But in both cases, their real power is pervasive, a bureaucracy that's inescapable and, and indispensable, woven into the fabric of Europe's law, something that could be resisted or exploited or negotiated with, but couldn't be ignored. And as for leaving it, well, that's easier said than done. It's a pattern which suited England's first two Tudor kings very well. Like many of their predecessors, Henry VII and Henry VIII loudly proclaimed their loyalty to Rome, quietly defended their own sovereignty, and steadily chipped away at the legal privileges of the English church. The most controversial issue was whether English churchmen, priests, should be subject to the criminal law, rather than, as had tra traditionally been the case, to the church courts as a separate and rather more lenient set of institutions. And both kings pared away the church's privileges. In 1514 to 15, early in Henry VIII's reign, the leading bishops made an effort to push back against these infringements. It's a very traditional spat. What's revealing about it is the way that it's resolved. The English church's rapidly rising star, Thomas Wolsey, brokered a deal. The king and his secular lawyers backed off and agreed that the church was in theory independent. And the Pope then granted to the English state legal powers which amounted to those that they had been trying to seize. The fiction of spiritual authority is maintained, real power shifts another notch, and everyone is more or less content. And the same pattern holds good across much of Europe when the Reformation crisis hits. By the mid-1520s, Martin Luther's movement was offering European princes something unprecedented, a real choice as to whether to retain, remain loyal to Rome. Even those who were never tempted by heresy and schism were aware that the mere fact of choosing gave them new leverage. A canny ruler like King James V of Scots, Henry VIII's nephew, could turn his avowed determination to banish the foul Lutheran sect, as he put it, into a protection racket. King James's loyalty to Rome was real, but its price was swinging new taxes on the Scottish church and lucrative church offices for his own infant illegitimate children. This is the way England should have gone, banging the drum loudly for papal authority. 
while quietly hollowing that authority out. But in 1527, Henry VIII bumped up against one of the papacy's few undisputed powers, matrimonial law. The root of the crisis, plainly, is Henry's determination to trade in his first wife for a newer model, and to do so in good conscience. Generally, it's in everyone's interests to find a way of making this work, but the tangled specifics of the case made it horribly difficult in law and not much better in politics. Henry's queen, Catherine of Aragon, had for a few months been married to Henry's elder brother, Prince Arthur, who had died in 1502 at the age of 15. Catherine is then, as a very young widow, pledged to, um, to, to Arthur's brother, Henry. But for him to marry his brother's widow in this way would normally be illegal. And so a dispensation is required from Pope Julius II. The marriage duly proceeds in 1509, but that unusual situation left a genuine seed of doubt about its legitimacy. Suddenly, in 1527, making that seed sprout into genuine grounds for cancelling the marriage became the most urgent political project in England. Cardinal Wolsey was the king's cardinal, and it was his job to make this happen. If anyone could have done it, he could. He set about the traditional two-step, protecting the papacy's dignity while securing the practical outcome that his king needed. It's not impossible. The king's legal case was flimsy, but not imaginary. Wolsey's a formidable operator. If all other things had been equal, any pope would have tried to give the English king what he wanted. There were paths through the labyrinth. The politics, though, were poisonous. Um, this began with Queen Catherine herself, who is every bit as determined to defend the validity of her marriage and the legitimacy of her daughter as her husband was to disavow her. Her unbending insistence that she was and would remain married to the man who now reviled her is the principal roadblock to any resolution. Not least, it drew in her nephew, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, the most powerful prince in Europe, who's not only concerned to defend his aunt's honor, but is also most reluctant to see the English king marry a woman whom he believed to be a French agent. And if it came to who had a better grasp on the Pope's attention, well, Henry VIII rules part of a small and faraway island, while Charles V has actually occupied Rome and briefly imprisoned the Pope in 1527 for all his loyal Catholicism. Worse, Henry VIII is every lawyer's nightmare the client who thinks he knows best. Wolsey's subtle strategies, which would have resolved the case with the creative use of technicalities rather than with stirring declarations, this does not suit Henry's sulfurous mood. As often as Wolsey tries to soothe papal sensibilities, Henry erupts with assertions that no pope had ever had the power to issue dispensations, such as the one that had allowed his marriage or with accusations that Wolsey and the other English clergy are, merely by following proper legal process, showing more loyalty to a foreign bishop than to their divinely ordained king. 
Even so, in 1528, Wolsey seemed to have triumphed. Seizing the right diplomatic moment, he persuades the Pope to delegate the case to a special court which is going to meet in England, presided over by himself and one other cardinal. But the victory that seems at hand keeps dancing out of reach. Wolsey's colleague on the legatine court, Cardinal Campeggio, the, the gent on the left here, is determined to reach a negotiated solution. He wants to persuade Queen Catherine to become a nun. It's his, his favorite move. It's a maneuver of dubious legality, but it doesn't really matter because she, of course, bluntly refuses to consider it. Instead, she sets out to torpedo the entire legal process. She produces a carefully concealed alternative copy of the original dispensation at the right moment, which has the effect of invalidating the court's commission and delaying the trial for months. It at last gets underway at Blackfriars in London on the 31st of May, 1529, and the Queen immediately denies the court's impartiality and appeals to Rome. She gives a bravura performance before the court. The entire case that Wolsey had constructed depended on the claim that the Queen's teenage marriage to Prince Arthur had not in fact had, had, had been consummated. That question is by the nature of things not amenable to definitive proof. But the Queen, the only living witness, um, now insisted that the first marriage had not been consummated, that she'd therefore come to Henry as a virgin and that he knew it. If this was so, Wolsey's entire case collapsed. According to one witness, the Queen challenged Henry in open court to swear an oath that this was not true, and the King refused to do it. He had a finely balanced conscience. When news of Catherine's appeal reached Rome, the Pope, the Pope revoked the court's commission, but before news of this reached England, Wolsey had already suspended the proceedings. So more than two years have gone past and the Cardinal has achieved precisely nothing. Henry's lustful determination is unshakable. So is his conviction that he's acting in good conscience, but he can't browbeat Rome into conceding. Other issues might have been fudged, but matrimonial law was to the 16th century papacy what, say, the principle of freedom of movement is to the modern European Union, a core competency that it can't compromise. Under this intolerable pressure, something had to give. And that something was the king's religious convictions. This is really the only moment in our story today when a genuine religious conversion plays a decisive role, because that's the only word that we'll do here. At some point in 1529, or late 1529, early 1530, Henry VIII comes to an astonishing conclusion that one pope's illegitimate dispensation, as he saw it, and another pope's intransigence proved that the papacy as such is entirely without legitimacy. It doesn't even exist. The so-called pope, and pretty soon the word is going to become unsayable in England, he's merely an Italian bishop. He's the heir to lies and conspiracies which have deceived Christendom for centuries until he, Henry Tudor, has finally seen through them, plainly, self-evidently, 
the Church of England ought to be under the authority of the man whom God has appointed to rule the country as a whole. The clergy now seem to the king to be traitors, kowtowing to a foreign priest and to his corrupt laws rather than obeying their own lawful sovereign. The first move would have been farcical if anybody had dared laugh. A decade earlier, Henry had worked hard to secure Cardinal Wolsey's appointment as a papal legate. It was that, amongst other things, that allowed him to preside over the Blackfriars trial. A few months later, in October 1529, on the basis of those very powers, Wolsey was accused under the law of Primunire. The very fact of being a papal legate, he was now told, was an offence to the king's authority. The same charge was brought against a group of other senior clerics in 1530. In 1531, the entire English church was collectively charged with the same crime for the offence of presuming to operate courts and systems of law as it had done for centuries. This is plainly an overreach. The immediate crisis is diffused by negotiating a royal pardon in return for a substantial fine, but this had never really been about money. When the matter comes to a head in 1532, the crux is the English church's independence from the king. When they demurred at his demands, the king accuses them of being but half our subjects, yea, scarce our subjects. Why, he now wondered, do bishops even swear an oath to the pope? Surely that shows that they're traitors at heart. And so under excruciating pressure, they gave in. The 1532 submission of the clergy, which accepted that Parliament would have ultimate authority over the English church, is a revolutionary moment. As Thomas More recognised, he immediately resigns as Lord Chancellor. This reflects the King's furious determination, but also the ruthless strategic brilliance of his omnicompetent new fixer, Thomas Cromwell. With his water diviner's nose for the subterranean currents of power, Cromwell had discovered a fount of law that could wash away anything that the king wanted rid of. The doctrine that statute law, law enacted by parliament and approved by the king, that that, that law is sovereign, it's absolute, it's final, it's beyond question, beyond appeal, and since 1532, that has become such a truism of the English constitution that it's hard for us to feel the novelty and power of its radical simplicity. Statute law became the procedural trump card wielded by every Tudor regime. As long as a parliament could be persuaded or browbeaten into cooperating, and it couldn't always be, a monarch could, in law, do almost anything. Cromwell was a pragmatic politician. He is not a visionary constitutional reformer, but he did have a sense of what this new tool he'd fashioned could do, and he set about using it. A series of statutes progressively cut the legal ties connecting England to Rome. By the time the 1534 Act of Supremacy formally recognised the king as supreme head of the Church of England, it's almost a fait accompli. Over the years that followed, the scope of statute law is progressively expanded. 
The Principality of Wales, for example, had for centuries been governed on simple royal authority, direct or delegated. But now statutes passed in 1536-1543 created a new framework for its government, bringing it into line with English norms. Defining the doctrines of the church, pursuing those who defied those doctrines for heresy, had once been principally ecclesiastical matters. A series of statutes, especially in 1539 and 1543, secularised them. Witchcraft had been a crime to be dealt with by the church courts until the Witchcraft Act of 1542. Even the succession to the crown itself, the untouchable mystery at the heart of a hereditary monarchy, is determined by an act of 1543. That act gave no rationale for its rather peculiar provisions, but it didn't need to. Asserting the king in parliament's sovereign will is enough. The most important feature of the 1534 Act of Supremacy is its vagueness. It said that the king is the only supreme head in earth of the Church of England called Anglicana Ecclesia. But as that last rather awkward phrase suggests, the Church of England is not a terribly familiar category. Up till now, the phrase had most commonly been invoked by churchmen defying the crown. Going back to those two iconic catastrophes of church-state relations in medieval England, Thomas Becket is revered as a martyr for the liberties of the Church of England. Magna Carta requires the king to promise to respect the privileges of the Church of England. But now Henry VIII, as well as riding roughshod over Magna Carta and pulverising Thomas Becket's shrine, seizes the term the Church of England for his own purposes. He applies it and all its nationalistic overtones to the new schismatic entity that he was creating. His critics were asked where their loyalties lay, the Church of England or the Bishop of Rome? frame it that way, and an answer that had once been unquestioned orthodoxy sounds instead like self-evident treason. And if this new Church of England was slippery, it's even less clear what that other clause in the Act, the King's new title of Supreme Head, might mean. The title's powers were never and have never been defined. To define it would either be to enrage the king by imposing limits on his powers, to appall Christendom by openly conceding their full extent, or both. As a result, the supremacy is in practice negotiated over the following years and decades, and that process is still going on. Henry's own view of the supremacy is dizzyingly high. He saw the sacred kings of ancient Israel as his models. Um, he even toyed with the idea that kingship gave him quasi-priestly authority, so for example the power to ordain. He certainly believed that he had the authority to micromanage his church's rites, its liturgy, and even its doctrines. He publicly argued points of detail with his bishops. He even tries to rewrite one of the Ten Commandments, this most covetous of kings reckons that God's commandment not to covet ought only apply to coveting wrongfully or unjustly. 
as with several of his other more eye-popping positions, Archbishop Cranmer gently persuades him to back down on that one. And none of his successors are quite so cavalier. Elizabeth I, recognising the widespread disquiet that the title of supreme head had raised, especially if it were to be applied to a woman, chose in 1559 to change it to supreme governor, which, since it's still undefined, changes nothing at all in law, just signals a certain restraint. Even so, like her father and her brother, she launched her religious policy with a sweeping set of royal injunctions for every parish resting on her sole authority. And she also retained a tendency to pronounce resolutely and peremptorily on church matters as if she were the Pope. At least that is what her second Archbishop of Canterbury told her. And she proved him right by her response, which was to keep him under house arrest for the remainder of his life. But I've already started doing it, telling a story that's about the idiosyncrasies and personal foibles of individual kings and queens. And that's become such a conventional part of the way we tell the story of the English Reformation that we've lost sight of how bizarre it is. In no other territory caught up in the drama of the Protestant Reformation, not even in Sweden, were the personalities of hereditary rulers so decisive a part of the story. If we look at many of the historic oddities of the Church of England, its weird mixture of firmly Protestant doctrinal articles with much more traditional liturgy and ceremonial, its retention of cathedrals, entities which serve no coherent purpose in a Protestant church, but which nurtured the musical traditions which Elizabeth I enjoyed, we have to conclude that these are not produced by some kind of genius of Anglicanism. But are what happens if you place the church under the control of a series of lay people with amateur theological interests and no one to stop them. To be precise, that arrangement might be expected to produce two results. One would be a series of essentially harmless, even random quirks. If Henry VIII disapproves of former nuns getting married, if Elizabeth I likes having a crucifix in her private chapel, well, it might be that neither of them had a very convincing theological rationale for their positions, but who's going to sit, sit them down and tell them so? The second result, though, is more systemic. If your church's doctrines are determined by a king or a queen, then they are going to have a pervasively royal flavour. Henry VIII's transforming vision of his God-given royal authority may have been unique to him, but the fact that all of his successors retain the royal supremacy is not a random quirk of personality. In most of the family of reformed Protestant churches to which the post-Reformation Church of England belonged, bishops were replaced by elected councils and synods. Ministers drew their authority from their colleagues and from their congregations, and moral discipline was imposed with at least a degree of disregard for rank and title. In the Church of England, such aspirations never had a chance to draw breath. The Church of England retained bishops not because they were essential to true Christianity, but because they were appointed by the crown. They served the royal dignity and they secured royal control over the church. 
King James I, who, when he'd been King of Scots, had had more than his fill of uppity synods, gave a famously tart reply to English churchmen who dreamed of abolishing bishops. He said, no bishop, no king. And that's not a theological statement. It's about power. Likewise, the ambition cherished by Protestant reformers from Archbishop Cranmer onwards for the English church to create a fully comprehensive system of moral discipline is repeatedly rebuffed, not for any reason of theological or moral principle, but because no monarch is willing to countenance a new system of church law that might defy secular authority. Nor is it just about structures and laws. The Church of England's liturgies and its homilies, collectively the, the most effective broadcast network open to any government in this period, these texts routinely pray for and give thanks for the monarch, but never so much as hint that the royal powers might be anything other than simply righteous. Martin Luther, the first begetter of the Protestant Reformation, had believed that a wise prince is a mighty rare bird and an upright prince even rarer. They're generally the biggest fools or the worst scoundrels on earth. That sentiment does not make its way into the Church of England's formularies. The anniversary of Queen Elizabeth's accession becomes a feast day marked by a special service of thanksgiving. Every post-Reformation parish church is required to display the royal arms prominently. It's almost, almost the only pictorial image in these stripped bare buildings. The Church of England generally refuses to recognise saints in the Catholic sense, but it does make one exception. After 1549, the beheaded Charles I was honoured as the Blessed King, Charles the Martyr. In 1662, a commemoration of him is added to the prayer book calendar. Churches are even dedicated to him as a saint. A handful of them remain down to the present. Charles I is not, in fact, a very credible martyr for, for Anglicanism. Um, this was the man who'd been willing to accept Presbyterianism in 1648, as long as he had the chance to launch a second doomed round of war against his own people. But he was certainly a martyr for the royal supremacy. And he's also its victim. His father, James I, had in his other life as James VI of Scots, seen up close what happened when a Protestant Reformation wriggled free of royal control. Once he'd inherited England's more house-trained Reformation, he was determined to maintain its discipline. And he succeeded. But imagine if he hadn't. His son Charles I's religion was unusually quirky. He's captivated by a particular strand of ceremonialism that was unapologetic about drawing on Catholic piety. If King Charles had not also been supreme governor of the Church of England, with aspirations to the same role in Ireland and even in Scotland, then those views would still have been controversial. But they wouldn't have been felt by his more puritanical subjects to be a mortal threat in the same way. They wouldn't have driven Scotland and much of England to rebel against him in order to preserve their understanding of what a true reformation was. The same crisis, the same vice, traps Charles's younger son, King James II, in the 1680s. James is driven from his throne not because England couldn't tolerate a Catholic as king, 
but because it couldn't tolerate a Catholic as supreme governor of the church. The royal supremacy concentrates enormous power in the monarch's hands, and as a result, the country eventually decides that the monarch alone can't be trusted to exercise that power. Because Henry VIII's decision not to define the royal supremacy leaves open a momentous question. To what extent is it vested personally in him, accountable only to God, and to what extent in the king in parliament, the entity which can create statute law? On the face of it, that 1534 Act of Supremacy is plain. It doesn't make the king supreme head of the church. It recognises that God has done so. Still, it is an act of parliament, and the repeated recourse to statute law does very much make it look as if that's where final authority lies. The Book of Common Prayer derives its authority from parliament. So do the 39 Articles of Religion, which are enacted under Queen Elizabeth. But Parliament's an increasingly secular body. Without the abbots of the great monasteries seated alongside the bishops, the Lord's spiritual no longer form a majority in the House of Lords. It seems increasingly incongruous that this body should be wielding so much spiritual authority. The case for it is made most forcefully by the most enduring theorist of the Elizabethan Church, Richard Hooker, who holds a very high doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty over religion. That's rooted in his conviction that an English parliament represents the nation as a whole, and that all true English subjects are by definition members of the Church of England. But for all his firm loyalty to his queen, this is a subversive sentiment. It comes alarmingly close to the accusation which was allegedly made by Thomas More, that an English parliament was taking on itself the right to decide how God ought to govern his church, and so overreaching its powers like the proverbial canute. When parliament defied royal authority during the Civil War, royalists asked the question, is the next step going to be for parliament to decide on whether or not God exists by majority vote? In fact, the tug of war between royal and parliamentary authority over the church is never decisively resolved. Instead, the so-called glorious revolution of 1688 to 9, when James II is deposed, changes the terms of that tug of war. The revolution sets in motion a decisive shift of power away from monarchs. But that power is transferred not only to parliaments, but also to ministers drawn from those parliaments who increasingly exercise what had once been royal powers on their monarch's behalf. The two sets of powers have fared differently. Parliament's legal authority over English religion is unchallenged by the time of the 1688-89 revolution. The two convocations, the ancient synods of the English church, which had been subordinate to Parliament since 1532, stopped holding substantive meetings at all after 1717. But the spiritual authority of Parliament looked increasingly odd. After the Parliaments of Scotland and Ireland are merged into that of England in 1707 and 1801, respectively, and especially after the admission of Catholics and Protestants outside of the established churches to the British Parliament in 1828-1829, Hooker's claim that Parliament should 
simply speak for the Church of England uh, subsides from being a legal fiction into being self-evident nonsense. During the 19th century, parliamentarians, a bit like the medieval popes before them, grew increasingly wary of trying to exercise the authority that they formerly claimed. In 1919, that situation is somewhat regularized when Parliament delegates its powers over the Church of England to a newly formed Church Assembly, subsequently reformed in 1970 as the General Synod. Even so, these bodies remain, in law, devolved bodies, dependencies of Parliament, which ratifies and in principle can overturn their decisions. Notoriously, Parliament did so in 1928, when the House of Commons blocked proposed rather modest revisions to the Book of Common Prayer. Conservative MPs overruling bishops and clergy on points of liturgy in a very Elizabethan manner. In 2012, when the legislation to permit women bishops in the Church of England narrowly failed to reach the necessary supermajority in the General Synod, the resulting outrage sparked serious talk of Parliament overturning the decision. Prime Minister David Cameron urged the Synod to, quote, get with the programme, and he publicly mused about giving it a sharp prod. And that's doing more than just offering his private opinion as an Anglican layman. Two years later, the Synod obediently voted through a revised proposal. So parliamentary sovereignty over the English church is sleeping, but it's not dead. It doesn't need to be openly exercised for it to exert a gravitational pull. But the authority claimed directly for the monarch under the royal supremacy also remains enormously important. It's merely no longer vested in the monarch personally. Royal prerogative powers exercised on the monarch's behalf by the prime minister are a central part of Britain's makeshift constitution, as some of the constitutional alarms and excursions the past few years have shown us. In church matters, this chiefly affects the very many senior posts, including all bishoprics, which are so-called crown appointments. For centuries, these appointments remained under direct government control. That's been progressively weakened, but even now, bishops are formally appointed by the Prime Minister on behalf of the Crown. Until 2007, astonishingly, the Prime Minister had a genuine choice of candidates for bishoprics. The church committees could indicate who they favoured, but a Prime Minister could overrule this and impose his or her own favoured candidate, as Margaret Thatcher did in 1987. It took a Scots Presbyterian Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, to confront and end this practice as the outrageous abuse that it was. But even with that last vestige of nakedly political control abandoned, the vast system of patronage which governs the Church of England's appointments at every level remains in place. Crown appointments are now more or less controlled by the Church's own institutions and indeed give a voice to its faux-democratic synod. But even now, most English parish priests are presented for appointment by so-called patrons, who are often local landowners or corporate entities like cathedrals or colleges, who have the legal right to nominate priests to particular parishes. 
This system is much less corrupt now than it was in the days when it provided the narrative spine of many a 19th century novel, but it still ensures that the congregations that constitute and fund the Church of England have remarkably muted voices in their own pastoral care and governance. This is a direct legacy of the Tudor Reformations. This system of patronage has medieval roots, but it's when swathes of church lands are given into secular hands under Kings Henry VIII and Edward VI that the rights of patronage associated with those lands were transferred to their new lay owners. There is no shred of theological justification for this, but those rights were property in the eyes of the law, and the new owners were unwilling to renounce them, not least because they could often use them to cream off substantial amounts of church income. Even at the time, this looked indefensibly corrupt. In 1546, a future Bishop of Ely, Richard Cox, lamented how the wolves of the world had been permitted to subject the church's ministry in this way to the greediness of a few. Our posterity will wonder at us, he prophesied, and indeed we will. Over the centuries, this stranglehold has been loosened, chiefly because landed wealth doesn't dominate England the way it once did, but the old lines of control are still there. It's no accident that for many generations, the Tory party, which represented England's landed interest, was also the political face of Anglicanism. The legacy of the Tudor Reformation for the Church of England is maybe obvious. But the final story I want to tell is even more consequential and maybe more malign. The Tudor Reformations transformed the relations between the peoples of the islands of Great Britain and Ireland. I already mentioned how the Reformation brought Wales fully into the structure of the English state. The so-called Acts of Union of the 1530s and 40s might be better known as the Acts for the Abolition of Wales. Wales ceases to have any distinct legal existence. A notorious law of 1746 formalised this when it declared boldly that the statutory definition of England included Wales. And this applies in church life too. The bishoprics of Wales are part of the province of Canterbury and the church in that principality is known simply and unproblematically as the Church of England. And just as the Welsh language is denied any status in the secular courts for this period, so too the Church of England in Wales. I mean, the very tortuousness of the terminology is revealing. The Church of England in Wales was staffed by Englishmen. Not a single Welsh-speaking bishop was appointed in Wales in the whole of the 18th century. In 1914, a law is passed by which the Welsh Church is finally disestablished and a distinct entity called the Church in Wales is set up, though the First World War means that this doesn't actually happen until 1920, when the, the driving force behind the law, David Lloyd George, had become Prime Minister. The new church kept its bishops, but it also opted for the kind of conciliar, synodical structure of self-government that the British state had been opposing for centuries. In which respect, it's worth noticing that the legislation is passed in the teeth of ferocious opposition from the House of Lords, and that when it was eventually done, part of the deal was that a substantial slice of the Welsh Church's property 
was declared to be national rather than church property and is kept by the state. Just in case anyone had forgotten who always wins in the post-Reformation struggles between church and state on this island. At least there was now a church in Wales, a more general recognition in secular law that Wales itself existed would have to wait until Harold Wilson's creation of the Welsh office as a government department in 1965 and his passage of the Welsh Language Act in 1967. Ireland was harder to digest. The island was formerly a lordship of the English crown in medieval times, but English control over large parts of it was at best nominal. The early Tudors were already unhappy with this, but Henry VIII's break with Rome makes it intolerable, and partly because his opponents in Ireland are quick to claim the mantle of papal loyalism, and partly because that English lordship was based on a papal grant. In 1541, an Irish parliament declares Ireland to be a kingdom in its own right, with Henry VIII as its king. And this sets in motion 60 years of intermittent but accelerating conflict as successive English regimes try to turn those claims into reality. And as many of the Irish progressively harden into resentment of English and the English and the Protestant religion they're trying to impose. The gruelling Nine Years' War of 1594-1603 ends with England establishing genuine military control over the whole island for the first time ever. One of the many prices of this victory is the long-term alienation of most of Ireland from both Englishness and Protestantism. England's solution to this is to import some instant Protestants, to plant large numbers of Scottish and English settlers in Ulster, which until then had been the heartland of anti-English resistance. And in that fashion, an inter-island conflict also becomes an intra-island one as it's remained down to the present. Successive English and British governments have tried a great many solutions to the so-called Irish question that they created in the wake of the Reformation. And often, whether this be in the panic sparked by the Irish Rebellion of 1641 or the Catholic Emancipation Crisis of the early 19th century, the late Victorian confrontations over Home Rule, the Irish border crisis in 2019, often the Irish question has threatened to break British politics apart. There is a certain rough justice in this. Deep down, these problems are of the English and British state's creation. But the British population at large remains surprisingly ignorant of the tangled history that connects the two islands. And like successive generations of British politicians, broadly prefers not to think about Ireland until it forces itself onto their attention, which as a result, it periodically does. Scotland's story is is a happier one, but is equally in the Reformation's shadow. Throughout the late medieval period, the Kingdom of Scotland had guarded its hard-won independence against repeated English attempts at conquest, and had done so in part by an enduring strategic alliance with France against the shared old enemy. And at first, the Tudor Reformation seemed likely only to reinforce this pattern, 
Henry VIII makes gauche attempts to persuade the Scots to join him in schism. That has absolutely no purchase in a kingdom which is served very well by the status quo. A, a further bloody failed attempt at English conquest in 1544 to 50 hardly helps. And then in 1559, everything suddenly changes. France is threatening to turn from Scotland's ally into its overlord. The Scottish Queen Mary has been married to the French King, Francis II. It seems likely that their sons are going to be kings of a united realm in which Scotland would be a, a mere province. Um, meanwhile, a burgeoning Protestant movement in Scotland, not least amongst the nobility, is bumping up against the Franco-Catholic regime. Military crackdown against the Protestant agitators sparks a much larger anti-French rebellion in 1559. And this is too good an opportunity for the new Protestant regime of Elizabeth I in England to ignore. By some mixture of good luck and good judgment, this time for once, England's intervention north of the border is not just militarily decisive, but is politically managed in such a way that the bulk of the country's leaders come over to the pro-English, pro-Protestant cause. The rebels win their victory, and it doesn't look or feel like an English conquest, not least because Elizabeth had been so plainly reluctant and indeed late to step in. The result is that the summer of 1560 sees a diplomatic revolution. Scotland's 250-year-old alliance with France is unceremoniously dumped. Scotland is henceforth going to be a Protestant state aligned with England, an alignment sealed by the deposition of Scotland's Catholic Queen in 1567, her execution by her English cousin in 1587, and her Protestant son's accession to the English throne in 1603. By then, some idealists had dusted off the name of an ancient Roman province and had begun to apply it to the new entity that was slowly coming into existence on their shared island, Britain. The Anglo-Scottish alliance that made Britain's existence possible has never been frictionless. At moments, it's looked fragile, but as I say this in early 2021, it is still just about standing. If and when that alliance is broken, and it does look increasingly like a when rather than an if, it will be, as they used to say, the end of an old song. Perhaps it will also be a sign that these islands are finally, collectively, ready to move on from the legacy of the Tudor Reformation.